Leah. Yes. What is your favorite social media trash dump? Like? Like a living in Lynchburg. Oh. Uh, like just your favorite trash heap <laughs> that you go to. Like comments that, like you purposely look for these posts to go search through the comments. Right now it is a queen fan group I'm in on Facebook. <laughs> I won't, I won't throw anyone under the bus who's in that group in case someone is listening. Just join the International Queen fan group on Facebook. You will not be disappointed. (laughs) So what about about yours? There's a couple nominees. There's one locally um, called Living in Lynchburg, where people just get heated about a Piggly Wiggly and a Cheesecake Factory coming to town. What are they building on 221? (laughs) I think it's actually just like a Whole Foods. No, it's a Piggly Wiggly corporate headquarters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or a Cheesecake Factory. There is no in-between. Yeah, it's either going to be a Piggly Wiggly Cheesecake Factory. But my my favorite that I have come across recently, I... <laughs> so I got bought some chicken noodle soup from Walmart. Okay. In those little plastic cups you can microwave. Yes. So I went online to, like, find the brand and get some nutritional information. And I found it's, like listing on the walmart page and it had one and a half stars <laughs> who was spending their time rating soup well i literally i was like well that's just too good i gotta see why <laughs> it's one and a half stars 22 people and okay. literally every single one is just people going this doesn't taste like nothing and then the only <laughs> good review was a four-star review just to <laughs> yell at the people for arguing about chicken noodle soup it's just someone going Get over yourselves. Oh <laughs> it's like, gosh. this is a nominal soup. And I think that's been my favorite so far. That's someone that's sticking out in my mind as a good candidate. I never knew the soup community was so heated. Well, eh. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. On that note, I'm Leah. And I'm Bethann. And you're listening to She Will Rock You. Okay, so we just got back. Literally, just. Yes, from Charlottesville at the Alamo Draft House, which if you have not gone... It's magical, y'all. It It is a kind of a dinner movie. You know, go to your movie theater. They have nice reclining seats. They bring out pizza to you or whatever's on their menu. They don't let anyone talk. Yes. It's amazing. You're not allowed to be on your phone or they will kick you out with no refund. Regal needs to get on this. It's amazing. Anyway... We just got back from Rocket Man. Yes. And to kind of preface this, me and Leah had a very hard hour and a half ride home because all we wanted to do was talk about the movie. And we had to stop ourselves. So we've been really looking forward to this for about two hours. You now. guys are getting our genuine conversation. We had to stop. We, we almost got into the conversation. We'd both be like, nope. Switch save it, save it, save it. Talk about something else. So we're very excited. That so. being said, if you have not seen the movie or you don't care to see the movie, uh, we will be talking about it in all its full spoilery detail. Yes. So skip ahead to the next time you hear our guitar riff. That's your safe zone. Yes. This is your warning. Skip now. Mm-hmm. That being said, so... So what'd you think? I loved it so, so much. It was... It was fantastic. I think my initial thoughts, it's in a similar style to Across the Universe. Yes. The Beatles movie from, I think it was like 2007. Yes. Somewhere around that time. Wow. 
but it was, I know. <laughs> okay. I know. I'm feeling old now, but yes. But it w- had its own Elton unique originality to it. Yes. It uh, was, Josh made a good point in the car because he was the only one allowed to talk about it in the car. Uh, it was the only biopic that any of us could think of that uses the songs in a musical theater style to further the story. Mm-hmm. If you've seen it, you'd understand. If you haven't seen it, what we're about to talk about probably isn't going to make any sense anyway. Yeah. I think just giving reactions and not really getting too much into the plot. First off, Tara Negerton. Round of applause. Amazing. Not just looks it like out him. of the park. It wasn't just like a lookalike casting. Great singing voice. Yes. And he, he brings his own uniqueness to it, which I really appreciate. While still keeping Elton's mannerisms. Yes. And his flair. Acting-wise, incredible. Yes. He, By the whole cast. What really stuck out to me was how good the cinematography and the imagery mm-hmm. were synced up. There's, there's some interesting symbolism, so... Spoilers. Mm-hmm. He enters rehab at the not rehab. I guess he's in rehab. Rehab mm-hmm. AA meeting at the beginning, and he's in a devil costume, but he leaves in a white suit. I didn't pick that up. Ah, yeah, I noticed that when he that's he, he comes wow. in, a, in a devil costume, literally a devil costume. The symbolism is very very prominent. But then he leaves in a white suit. That's uh, incredible. When he's been cleansed. Yeah, of and his there, there's a lot of tying into his past, and this little boy always comes uh. back. It honestly played like a musical. Yeah, he basically um, wrote a musical about his own life using yeah. his own songs. But like like a stage production yeah. at a movie level. Yeah. And just how they arranged some of the imagery with the music, mm-hmm. I was you know, to the point of tears at a certain point. The scene where he tries to kill himself in the pool and he sees mm-hmm. his younger self and he's the rocket man. And- mm-hmm. But yeah, that was really good. And then how they incorporated Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. <sighs> that was so good. Just how that music lined up with the plot and imagery that was happening on screen. It was and it gives, so well thought out. It gives the lyrics an even more impactful meaning, I think. To most, mm-hmm. to a lot of the songs, like, you can kind of see the emotions that influenced yeah. well, brought, the songs. It brought the songs with a whole new light, too. Yeah. Because we're so easy to like, oh yeah, this song sounds like this. You know, Goodbye Yellow Brook Road, I kind of have an imagery that's in my head. But in the movie, it's when Bernie Taupin is getting ready to leave and how it just Mm -hmm. matches up with the scene. It's a new color. Yep. A new depth. Really just such an amazing job to pay tribute to Ellen. I mean, he is an executive producer, so I'm sure. And he's not He got to tell his own story, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Not many people get that chance. He got to tell the story like he wanted to. Because he's Sir Elton John, he kind of told the uh, movie companies that wanted to tone down his life, essentially F, F off. Yeah, he was like, we're going to do it my way. <laughs> and The unfiltered version. But you know what? That's like true Elton, though. It was phenomenal. He stuck to his character. It just goes to show you, you make a film where you stick to your guns and you make it the way it should be. And the product is usually, usually beautiful. Yep. And that's this film, it's going to get nominated for, even though we're not a movie podcast. Yeah. It's going to get nominated for Best Picture, Best Best Original original Song, song. Best, I think, both lead actor and supporting for who played Bernie Toppin. And especially following Rami's win Mm -hmm. for Bo Rap. Like, 
it'll be it'll be an interesting Oscar season. Yeah. Uh, to wrap up our thoughts, what was your favorite sequence? I think it was a honky cat one, where he just meets John Reed, and it's showing the rise to fame. I mine's a tie between Saturdays all night all Saturdays all whatever Saturday fighting song Saturday nights all right yes there's a lot of words in there uh, because it, it shows him like maturing into his craft and. Mm-hmm. Getting the guts to get up on stage. It's just a fun song. But also Rocket Man, when they put him in the hospital and there's like this choreographed ballet sequence where he's like yeah. stripping off one identity and putting on another one. I was like, it, I was shook. Mm-hmm. For lack of a better word. No, that's absolutely fair. That was, they hit that from a historical yeah. standpoint right on the nose because that literally is how it happened. He goes from drug overdose, mm-hmm. intentional drug overdose for suicide. You gotta get back on stage. To a week later. Or two weeks later, playing Dodgers. It's insane. Yeah, they did a really good job portraying that. But I also, I have to give a shout out to oh, the yes. best, the MVP scene, if you will. Because when they're in, um, whenever this family gets invited to his house. Yes, after he's just broken up with John. Yeah, after he just broke up with John, Fred, his stepfather. He just makes an appearance. He calls him Durf. Yes. For one split second. I was, I looked at Liam, then we weren't allowed to talk. And I was like, ah, I was so excited. It made it into the movie, guys. Yeah. Uh, okay. We're going to, we're going to play the riff now so that the skippers can join us. Welcome back, skippers. Before we get into this week's episode, we do have one tiny business housekeeping note to cover. We realized after releasing the first episode, we never told you guys how often we were going to do these things. Whoops. So here we are. This is right now. This is a bi-weekly release. Uh, so every two weeks. Uh, it may change in the future. We may do... Mm-hmm. We may split up longer episodes and release them on the original off weeks. Just stay tuned. That's yeah. all we can say. We'll give you the details. So when I chose the the topic for this week's episode, I was thinking, what is the band that you have like a distinct memory of? And I came up with when I was in middle school, my dad was watching Family Guy and there's this great scene where they're at the Drunken Clam. I love where this is going. (laughs) And they are singing karaoke. And they start singing, don't stop believing. And literally the entire town comes and joins them in this karaoke bar. (laughs) I don't know why that memory is such a strong memory, but it made me pick Journey as my first topic. Hey, whatever works. So, um, and then I later regretted picking Journey after I did all the research, because as we'll learn, they, it's not that they have a bad reputation. Spoiler, they're not taken seriously by a lot of rock enthusiasts. So Journey. Telling you their history requires a little bit of backstory because they had a just a weird couple of first years. So they're formed in San Francisco in 1973, and they're made up of some former members of the band Santana and a really? band. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Uh, Neil Sean, the bassist, okay. was the bassist for Santana. Huh. And I think there's another guy. They changed out members a lot at the beginning. Okay. F- spoiler. Uh, so it came from. Band members of Santana and a band called Frumius Bandersnatch. That's not a name. That's a name. And of course, I had to click the That's... hyperlink. Uh, the band was named after a character from the Lewis Carroll po- poem, Jabberwocky. So now it makes Wait sense. Wait a second. <laughs> First of all, that was in a, 
because Jabberwocky is related to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Frumious. Frumious Bandersnatch, which as I was scrolling through Instagram the other day, I saw someone who posted a record by them. I was like, this is too weird. I need to keep scrolling. That's just. Mm, Look them up. Frumious Bandersnatch. So. Well, it's better than Blue's Algae. This is true. (laughs) I'll give them that. (laughs) So these guys from Santana and Frumious Bandersnatch decided to make their own band. Uh, in San Francisco in 1973. And they join under Santana's former manager, who has the best name of Herbie Herbert. Ugh. Herb? <laughs> Herbie please Herbert. Please tell me he goes by... Let it, let, please tell me his middle name is Herb. So it could be Herbie Herb Herbert. I don't know. We need to look it up. I'm not even... I hope it is. I'm not entirely sure his name is actually Herbie Herbert or if he just, like, it's a nickname. You know what? If it's on the wiki, it's what it is. It's, but they, it's, they call him, he's called this across many sources. His name's Herbie Herbert. <laughs> so Herbie, he's important to this story. He was, he started in the 60s as part of the road crew for Santana. Okay. So that's how he met the dudes who left Santana. Uh, he also left Santana and made this band. And he's super young when all this is going down. At the height of Journey fame in the 80s, he's only 35. So when hmm. he make when he puts these guys together to make what is ultimately Journey, he's probably like 22, 24. Jeez. Dude's a genius, as we will see wow. later. Uh, so they when they originally form, they're called the Golden Gate Rhythm Section. Because they're in San Francisco. Because they're in San Francisco. Uh, and they their main purpose was to serve as a backup group for other San Francisco area artists. Which to me doesn't really make sense because i feel like if you're a band you shouldn't need a backup band so like if let's say what is this 1970s let's say 73 so let's say some famous 1970s artist because someone literally everything escaped my mind yeah comes into town and they're like i need to hire a band because my band got lost in kansas we left them there we left them there by accident i guess so i guess i'm gonna hire the golden, golden gate, gate rhythm band yes to sub in all right well, i mean that's some talent because you need to just fly with the music and yep. just go so, I, don't, I don't know how that works all right so they kind of do that thing for like two years they rename themselves journey and then in 1975 they released their self-titled album self-titled album journey on this album the original lead vocals are done by greg raleigh Mm-hmm. And that's that's all there is to know about that album. It's okay. I listened to some of it. It doesn't sound like the journey that we that we know today. What does it kind of sound like? It's not that. Ex- it sounds like San Francisco area rock. Just picture mm. the most basic white San Francisco area rock band in the seventies. Uh, are we talking more hippie? We're talking just more like standard standard rock seventies rhythm. Standard. Rock. It's not exciting. Okay. Sorry, guys. So. That's in 75. In 76, they released their second album. And because the first album was so lackluster, it did not sell. To make the second album, they took three of the band members, I don't know which three, and they made them take singing lessons so that, <laughs> <laughs> so that they could give Raleigh some backup vocals. Because the first oh, one's great. just him singing. No one liked that. So they're like, hey, you three, you're going to sing backup vocals now. But who is that really insulting? Is that insulting the backup people or is that insulting Raleigh? It's insulting Raleigh. Okay. Just wanted to check. So the next year, they released their third album. Okay. We're at three albums in three years. And for one of the songs, they swap out Greg Raleigh with Neil Sean for the one song's lead vocals. 
the sales still suck. I don't know who keeps signing them to do records because they're not selling. Mm-hmm. But someone at Columbia was like, hey, y'all, you need to change up something or we're going to be like cut you from the label. Oof. So they asked them to change their musical style completely, uh, add a front man, and then they took Greg Raleigh, stuck him back on keyboard, and oh. made him sing backup vocals. Oh, oh that's, <laughs> that's a punch to the heart. Right? Oof. Just wait. So then they hire a guy named Robert Flushman as the front man. Uh, the band transitioned to this more popular style, similar to Foreigner in Boston. They were selling records. Columbia obviously wanted to sell records. They said, hey, do this or we're going to cut you. So from this, they get their first big hit written, which is Wheel in the Sky. But then they decided they wanted to replace Fleshman. The poor dude's only been in the band like nine months at this point. But they didn't want to alarm him. So Herbie goes and finds this kid named Steve Perry. He's like 21, hanging out in the Bay Area, trying to make it. And he goes, hey, kid, I like you. We're going to bring you on as a roadie. So they bring him on as a roadie, and he hangs out for a couple weeks. Aw, roadie. That's my dog's name. (laughs) But on the tour that they're currently on, during a sound check in Long Beach, Herbie goes, hey, Steve, come do this song during sound check. And they push... Flushman like off the stage. He's not. He's not around at this point. You, you, hey, look at this nice closet. Why don't you go stand in it? And then he goes, "Hey, rest of the band. Steve's your new front man." Oh. So uh, Flushman's gone. So they canceled him. They canceled him. Oh. They put him in a closet. They left him at the arena. <laughs> never, oh. never to be seen. He was again. on a bathroom break, and they all packed up. Painful. So. Painful. They bring Steve Perry in in 77, but they also bring in Queen's producer, Roy Thomas Baker, okay. to help them get this new sound that they want. In 1978, they released their fourth album, Infinity, which goes platinum almost immediately, and this contains Wheel in the Sky. It's their first album to ever really actually sell anything. Mm-hmm. And in case you're curious, I looked up what exactly a platinum certification is because... We hear those things, and we don't know what they mean. No. Uh, so the platinum certification was released or introduced in 1976, two years prior to this album coming out. So it hadn't been around very long. And a platinum record is an album that sells one million units mm-hmm. or a single that sells two million units. Hmm. So that's what those terms mean, if you've ever wondered what those mean. Okay. Around the same time with, with the release of Infinity, the, the band starts to kind of get get their thing going. They Their previous album covers were just band members doing things. Like, they weren't that exciting. Mm-hmm. So someone, I don't know who, has the idea to put a scarab beetle on this album. Yeah, that was my reaction. All right. Um, and th- that's become their thing ever since the Infinity album. There's a, a scarab beetle on all of their album covers. Because nothing says journey to me more. <laughs> yeah. The journey of life. I remember the first time I, I saw beetle. one of their albums, I was like, why is it a beetle though? I <laughs> was talking. No, not a plane. But they chose it as their mascot, and it actually has a little bit of a—they call it a superstition around it. Hmm. Uh, so Jonathan Kane, we're not introduced to him yet, but this quote is important. He says about the beetle: "The one and all of Journey is the evolution that continues to take place with members coming and going." The band has evolved similar in ways to that the Egyptians used to think that the beetle would go up into heaven and take their souls into the afterlife and continue to have eternal happiness. And with that, the beetle has brought us a lot of happiness. 
I'm sorry. That's just throwing shade at guy, whatever his name is. They left behind in uh, Topeka. Yeah. Like, like taking the soul off to heaven. That's like saying like, y- y'all not need anymore. That's, the, that's, the, that's a shade moment. The beetle is a symbolic journey. Okay. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. So in 78, they have this album. They just got Steve Perry. So they fire their drummer and bring on Berkeley trained jazz drummer. Nice. Steve Smith. Smart. So at this point, Perry, Sean, Raleigh, Steve Smith, and Ross Valerie record their fifth album. We're only in 1979. We're on number, album number five. And they have their first Billboard Top 100, Top 20 single, Love and Touch and Squeezin'. Hmm. The next year, they release album number six. Okay. Because these dudes can't chill. They got to have an album every no year. No one could chill back then. No. We don't release albums at this rate anymore. No, we don't. There's, There's less drugs. We, eh, that may not actually be true. I don't, I don't actually know if Journey was on drugs at any point. Never came yeah. up. But I mean, if you're doing the kind of drug that just makes you go all the time. What else like, do you do besides make a record? What else are you going to do? So they make album number six called Departure in 1980, which peaked at number eight on the album charts. So in 1980, Greg Raleigh goes, hey, I've had enough of this. I'm leaving. Which marks the second time he's left a successful band. What? <laughs> the other one, I think, was Santana. Oh, he was, he was the one in Santana. I'm pretty sure he... Don't quote me on that. If that's wrong, don't yell at me. I'm pretty sure it was Santana. But it's the Damn. second time in his career he left a band right before they broke. Did it, does he get a Guinness World Record for it? I don't know. Do they honor him with a plaque? He's probably still hella broke, though. Oh, that sucks. So they replace him, because at this time he's playing keyboard, mm-hmm. with Jonathan Cain, who, spoiler alert, is still with them today. We're going to stop losing people for a while. Nice. And his claim, not claim to fame, but the reason that they chose him is because he came with his own synthesizers. <laughs> and they're just auditioning all these people and are like, where's your synthesizer? Get him out of here. Get him out of here. I don't know why. That's selling point. It's 19, <laughs> It's 1980. <laughs> It's not like you can't get one off the street at that point for 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so, so popular then. With the addition of Jonathan Cain, we now have the, the iconic Journey lineup that, is, that makes them up for their big years. So let's pause and explain who each of them are. Because you probably lost track by this point, because I did when I was reading the articles. They went through a lot of transition. So on lead vocals, we have Steve Perry, which he just makes me laugh. Because at this point, I mean, it's 1980, you have people like... Elton John, who has a great name. You have Freddie Mercury, who has a great name. Uh, around this time, you're going to have people like Motley Crue with Nikki Six, And then you get mm-hmm. this dude named Steve Perry. He didn't get the, the Elton John, Reggie Dwight memo. No. So, but it still worked for him. He has a boring name, but he has an incredible voice. I will give him that. Like, Dude is very, very talented musically. And uh, so a little bit about him. He had a very troubled childhood. He never talked about it. Uh, other than just saying that he went through things that he later found out in life that lots of other kids went through, Aww. whatever that means. Uh, and he said that the only way that he could get it out was through his music. At age 12, he heard a Sam Cooke song on the radio and mm. said, I'm going to be a singer, Mom. And she was like, okay, yeah, sure. Mm. He drummed in his high school marching band, and he moved to Sacramento in his early 20s where he met Herbie, and the rest is history. Herbie Herb Herbert. So Neil Sean plays lead guitar. He also does backing vocals. He started playing guitar at age five, which 
I can't imagine a five-year-old playing guitar. That's that young. That's hard. He is one of the originals from Santana, which he joined at 17, but only after he turned down Eric Clapton to join his band. That's, but that's, that's the thing about Santana, though, is all of them were young. Yeah. When they played Woodstock, like, Carl Santana was only, like, 16. That's insane. Or something like that. Yeah, he was 17. Yeah, they were all super young in that band. And he turned out Eric Clapton to be in Santana. All right. I mean, it would have been fine either way, so. And the best part of his Wikipedia entry is that he was in a relationship with a girl named, I'm going to butcher this, I'm sorry, Michelle Salahi, who previously crashed a White House state dinner, starred in Bravo's Real Housewives, (laughs) and abruptly left her husband to take up with Sean. They got married in 2013 on a pay-per-view wedding that cost $14.95 to watch. What? Can I still go back and see this? Hopefully it's at a discounted rate then. I don't know. I, I didn't look it up, but... That's amazing. That's that's the most interesting part of him. So Jonathan, That's your legacy. Cheers, my friend. <laughs> you married a real housewife. Jonathan Kane plays keyboards, mm-hmm. synthesizers, rhythm guitar, and backing vocals. He started his musical journey with accordion lessons mm-hmm. at the age of eight. Gotta start somewhere. Not the ideal eight-year-old instrument, so good for him. Uh, But he was a survivor of a massive school fire in Chicago in 1958 called the Our Lady of Angels School Fire, in which 92 students and three nuns died. And I listened to an interview that he did uh, about his book that he wrote that covers his life and his his journey with Journey. Um, and he was like, we had to grow up that day. Like he was, I don't remember he was in the third or fourth grade. He was in elementary school and like you, a hundred of his classmates died in a fire. Like these guys had some traumatic pasts. Oh, that's tough. Uh, and he's been married three times, but he wrote the song faithfully for his first wife. So she has that going for her. There you go. Ross Valerie, he plays bass. And the interesting thing about him is that he... So he plays a four-string bass, but he strings it with the bottom four strings of a five-string set. So where a normal bass is Mm E-A-D-G, his is B-E-A-D, because it gives it a five-bass sound, a five-string bass sound, but you only need four fingers to play it, so he can play Uh, faster. So it sounds fuller, but it's easier to play. That's smart. Yeah. So he just throws out the top string. Yeah. Not the top string, the the higher string. He throws out the other top string. He uses the bottom four. That's smart. Uh, he also has an interest in the ancient practice of bead whistling. Uh, did you say bee whistling? <laughs> bead. Bead whistling? <laughs> bead whistling. Like through a, like a necklace bead? I don't know what it is. I just thought it has sounded great to include in his mini biography here. Like, or is it short for like beetle? No, bead. Like, like a hollow thing you put on a string. He found it, He learned about it on a trip with the band to Bangkok. All right. I don't know what bead whistling is. Should have googled it. And then we have Steve Smith on drums and all the percussion things because they sometimes use random things. He got his first drum kit at age two, hmm. which my niece is two, and I cannot imagine a two-year-old playing a drum kit, even a drum kit designed for two-year-olds. Like, I mean, not many parents would want their two-year-old to have is, a drum kit. This is true. But so he, good for the parents. He, I mean, he went on to be basically a drumming legacy. He, he was a professionally trained jazz musician. Um, but, and because of that, it gave him a different take on drumming than other rock drummers at the time. If you watch, there's a documentary I watched where he, he doesn't hold his sticks like traditional 
rock drummers. He holds them like a jazz drummer. Yeah, he holds them like, like a at pencil. An angle. Yeah, like a pencil. At an angle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's adorable and couldn't stand being away from his wife and kids, so he took them on tour with him. Oh, good family man. And other, he works nowadays as a session musician for lots of famous artists. The the biggest name on that list was Mariah Carey. There you go. So, so back back to the history and the timeline. So now that we have this iconic lineup, we're going to record the biggest album that they ever had, Escape. So this is mind-blowing to me. They start recording this album in April 1981 and last to the middle of June. So at most, they spent six weeks recording, right? Mm-hmm. They release it in July. Holy cow. I don't know how they did that. Well, it was Especially in the 80s. I mean, that final process, I don't think it's easy. I mean, at this point, you're still hand-cutting, like, Oof. recordings. So someone did not sleep. I mean, it, it was released on July 31st. Did, did, were they behind schedule? No, they just wanted, they were like, hey, this is the lineup that we, we feel good about this. Columbia's up our butt about getting an album that's going to sell. So I guess we're going to make Get it, it really, now. really fast. Wow. Uh, which all of that paid off because it was pretty much an overnight success. Okay. Uh, it sold out almost instantly. Today, it is nine times platinum, which wow. if you remember those numbers earlier, means they sold 9 million copies. Wow. It produces three top 10 hits, Who's Crying Now, Open Arms, and the, the all-time favorite, Don't Stop Believing." I think I've heard of that one. You may have. <laughs> Open Arms is the, the song that of theirs that hit highest in the charts ever. It stayed at number two for six consecutive weeks, uh, and it... The end of 1982, Billboard did a top 100 for the year, like like every year, uh, and it was number 34 on that list. Hmm. And if you're curious, number one was "Eye of the Tiger," so it lost it lost to a good song. <laughs> that's fair. So obviously, if you have an album that's doing this well in 1982, that is the right year, right? 19 yeah 1981. You're gonna go do a lot of promotion for it, mm-hmm. sell even more records. So they do some random things they record radio commercials for budweiser and then they sold their likeness and music for use in two video games you're kidding i'm not kidding so the first was the journey arcade game because it's the 80s we have arcade games they're really Mm -hmm. big in this game the objective of the game i can't even say this seriously is to reunite the members of the bands with their instruments (laughs) Is it like a Pac-Man setup? I didn't. I didn't look at gameplay. I just looked at the description. We can Google it later. Uh, but obviously, Steve Perry doesn't have an instrument, so he gets a microphone. Yeah. Each little instrument is on a different planet, All and right. you must first reach the instrument and then make it back to your spaceship without hitting an obstacle. I need to look up on YouTube how this is played. And each so each. Stage was a different musician. Yeah. Once you collect all the instruments, the band performs a concert, and you, the player, get to control Herbie, who is a bouncer. Wait, Herbie made it? Herbie made it to the game. <laughs> whose job is to prevent fans from rushing the stage. If That's you let awesome. a if you let a fan sneak past the bouncer, the crowd then steals all your instruments back, and you have to start the game over again. <laughs> This, the game continues in this, like, doing this over and over, and you had, you had, I think, four lives. That's amazing. I'm just amazed that Herbie is the linchpin of that entire game. If he, Herbie doesn't do his job. If Herbie doesn't do his job, you lose. You lose. Um, the second one that they sell their name to 
is even better, if you can believe I'm it. I'm so ready. It's Journey Escape for the Atari 2600. Okay. So you can play Journey at home. Oh. So you know those graphics were killer. Yes. So in this one, you have to lead. <laughs> this is a thing that happened, guys. Uh, you must lead the band members to their Scarab escape vehicle. <laughs> Quick to the beetle, and, <laughs> and then you have to protect your cash from love crazed groupies, sneaky photographers, <laughs> stage barriers, and shifty eyed promoters. Oh, this is the language that they use to gosh. market this thing. And then you get help from your roadies, who are who give you short periods of immunity to obstacles. <laughs> and then you guess how Herbie is. Herbie's in this one too? Good for you, Herbie. Making a difference. <laughs> You're gonna have to cut this out because I can't supply. It's alright. Okay, then so Herbie is randomly the Kool-Aid man. What? What? That should not fair to him. He deserves better than handing out Kool-Aid. <laughs> Kirby, wherever you are, I'm so sorry they did that to you. You deserved a better role so, in that game. You deserved to fight off some bouncers. That, you, that was smart. I mean, uh, fight off some groupies. That, that was a better role for you. If you could understand what I was saying, Herbie was represented as the Kool-Aid man. Like handing out Kool-Aid. Let's just... I don't know what he's doing. Oh, what, he, he has to be handing out Kool-Aid because it can't be the actual Kool-Aid man. It literally says role. their manager inexplicably depicted as the Kool-Aid man. Wait, because it was the '80s and Kool Aid's everywhere. So either he's handing out Kool Aid, which is the most logical, most likely, or he's the pitcher guy. He's the big red dude. He's not. (laughs) He is the Kool Aid man. He he busts through walls and says, "Oh yeah." Herbie, I'm so sorry. So I'm so sorry. So when you get help from the roadies. You were immune to obstacles, but if you get help from the Kool-Aid man, your whole scarab car that you're riding in is completely immune for like a couple seconds. Like when you get when you get the special ghost thing in Pac-Man. What a wild, wild game. I don't know what the point of these games were other than just because they could, but that's my favorite thing I found in any of this research. This was designed by someone from the 70s left over from doing a lot of drugs. Uh-huh. That's, that's what that was. So uh, basically the... but. As detailed as that sounds, it really was just Space Invaders because you just moved side to side. It's it's an Atari. Like, gameplay was not that advanced. Yeah. So, oh, gosh. 1983. They're at the height of their fame. Okay. Rolling Stone comes out with their, their annual record guide and gives each of their band's albums only one star. Oof. Uh, he writes that the guy who wrote this, this, uh, re- this record guide says that Journey is a dead end for San Francisco area rock. Oh, that's a good pun, though. (laughs) That's a great pun. He later called Escape as one of the worst number one albums of all time. Wow. We'll touch back on this later. So now it's 1983, and they release yet another album, album number eight, Frontiers, which hit number two on the album charts, selling nearly six million copies. So not as many as Escape, but still pretty good. However, this one has four top 40 hits, separate ways, parentheses, worlds apart, mm-hmm. which side note, I just really hate when song titles have parentheses in them. Just name the song, what you're going to name it. 
Don't put parentheses in there. That's right. Uh, which hit number eight. Other side note, just go to YouTube, watch the video for separate ways. Just the first 10 seconds. I promise you will not be disappointed. She showed it to me before this, and I, I too can attest, you, you will not, you, you will experience something just magical. <laughs> 80s music videos are something else. Uh, so that reached number eight. Faithfully peaked at number 12. And then Sunder My Love and After the Fall both peaked at 23, which is okay. So at this time, they go on this massive tour, like mm-hmm. unheard of at this time tour. And during this tour, they contracted some dudes at NFL Films. I don't know if it has anything to do with the football league or if that was just some initials or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, to make a video documentary of their life, which some kind person put on YouTube for me to watch. Not just me. You can watch it too. It's called Frontiers and Beyond. And they filmed this throughout their tour, but most of the uh, live concert scenes were shot at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia with 80,000 fans in attendance. Of course. We don't do concerts like that anymore. No, we do not. So I watched this whole documentary. It's worth a watch because 80s documentaries are just, they're great. Oh, they're they're a lost art. They are a lost are. art. And the aspect ratio does not fit on your TV. <laughs> um, so this tour, the Frontiers tour to promote this album, goes through 72 cities. 110 concerts are put on for more than 2 million people, all in 180 days. So they have... Yeah, that's crazy. They have a crew of 70 people that's needed to transport the stage every night. It takes up seven tractor trailers... To transport this gear. Oh, wow. And they flash back to, uh, I guess it's in San Francisco. I don't know. It's it's Herbie's office because Herbie wasn't always on tour with them. Mm-hmm. He was a lot of the time. Meanwhile, back at home base, they have like a fan mail processing plant because it's the 80s. And yeah. that's how you get in touch with your favorite artist. These dudes are getting 600 fan letters a day. So Wait, how many? 600. Hmm. So they hired three ladies, and their job is just to reply to fan letters. Oh, well, you know what? At least they hired someone to reply. Yeah, I thought that was they cool. They could have ignored them. Um, they touted the te- most technologically advanced stage at the time, which I'll give them that. It was pretty impressive for 1983. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. But the best part of this whole documentary is they, they interview the head of the roadies, who is Scottish, and he just is amazing to hear talk. But they interview each of the band and just the relationship with the road crew. And they just love them so much. Aww. They're like, yeah, we get the easy part. We just like wake up and walk on stage every day. They are, they have to wake up like at the crack of dawn and set up all their stuff. And it's just Steve, they interview Steve Perry. And he's like, you know, in this industry, it's really hard to uh, to stay humble because people are just telling you how how good you are all the time. So I, I hang out with the road crew every now and then because they bring me back Aww. to earth. And you like, know what? Good for him, because a lot of artists, like, you hear all the time, like, they lose their soul. Yeah. Because they get too famous. Yep. So for him to, like, actually go out of the way to be friends with just some roadies, which, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term, a lot of artists would never yeah. do that. Yeah, no, it's super to cool. To this day. And you know what? Good for him. Um. So then there's, there's a, that kind of is their last big success. They kind of, things start to happen after 1983. After they finish that tour, Neil Sean and Steve Perry both take off some time to work on their personal projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some songs that were originally intended for our f- for Four Frontiers. It's a hard phrase to say. Uh, Ask the Lonely, which is a pretty well-known song, which 
ended up on the movie soundtrack for Two of a Kind. And then they put Only the Young on the soundtrack to the movie Vision Quest, which is the most 80s movie title I've Mm. ever heard. In 1986, they release what I think I've lost count. I think it's their ninth album called Raised on Radio, which does not fit with the theme of their other album titles, but we'll let it slide. And then right after they release that, bass player Ross Valerie and drummer Steve Smith get fired from the band. I don't know why they're fired. They got left behind in no. Missouri this time. Herbie did not lock them in a closet this time. Uh, they left for musical and professional differences. So that means someone got in a fight. Yep, 100%. So they replace the drummer with a guy named Larry Land- London. Larry London. But do you know who they replaced their bassist with? Tell me. American Idol judge Randy Jackson. <laughs> no, they did not. What? This is one of those things. How have I not known this? I I remember watching American Idol back in, I don't know, 2001 or two. And they, they show like video of Paula Abdul doing her thing back in the day. And then they show Randy Jackson playing bass. And Which, I was, yeah, yeah, I remember those clips. I never realized it was for Journey. What? I thought he was just like this record mogul guy. Nope, that's, that's a. Uh, well, I know Simon. Cowell, yeah, Simon. But, but no. Nope. I knew Randy was involved with music and could play bass and a bunch of stuff, but I thought he was more like on the record side of things. Nope, he was the bassist for Journey. For a while. He didn't let, the band has a lot of turnover, okay? Yeah, Yeah, he was the bassist for Journey. That's how, I think, I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, that that was his, like, big break. Huh. So, there's that. They tour for a little bit with with Randy Jackson and, and Larry London. Uh, it doesn't last very long, but they, so they take a hiatus from 1987 to 1995. They all work on their personal projects. They have kids, that kind of thing. So in 1995, the original Escape and Frontiers lineup, which if you're keeping track, is Perry, Sean, Kane, Valerie, and Smith, all come back. So they fire Randy Jackson and the other guy. Short-lived. Uh, but they have a new manager. Herbie's gone. Aww, so now they're, I liked Herb. I know, I liked Herbie too. Herbie's probably loaded at this point. He's okay. Yeah, he's fine. And so they signed with a guy named Irving Azoff, who was the Eagles manager. So they plan another tour because they, I don't know, they're getting ready to release another album. They're going to tour again. That's what you do. But then Steve Perry goes to Hawaii and he goes on a hike and he breaks his hip. So he can't tour anymore. They're like, hey, Steve, you need a hip replacement. He's like, nah. So he, they just fire him from the band. Oh, or he he leaves the band. I once they fire him, he leaves. I, he eventually gets a hip replacement, but you can't tour with a broken hip. There's no way. So then in 1998, Neil Sean and Jonathan Kane are like, "Hey, we still want to do this thing. We still want to make Journey. We're gonna find a new lead singer." But while they're trying to find a lead singer, Steve Smith leaves again. Hmm. And I don't know why he left, but when he leaves, he gets super depressed. Says he can't even listen to music. For years after he leaves Poor the band. Poor guy. I know. I was like, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Because he's, he's the one that went to Berkeley and trained as a jazz musician. Oh, uh, he eventually comes back around. He can listen to music. Good. He released a solo album in 2018. Good. That's good news. So in 1998, they replaced Steve Perry with Steve Aguirre. They like the name Steve. <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. Is that just Steve Perry wearing a mustache? A no, name? Steve Perry had a mustache. So. Oh, well, I mean, no mustaches. Okay. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe some glasses. They replaced Steve Perry with mustacheless Steve Perry. <laughs> Steve O'Gary. Wink, who, wink. Who tours with them until 2006. So 
from 1998 to 2006, that's seven years. In these seven years, Steve Algieri gets a lot of crap because he has this, this vocal, these vocal problems from 2003 onward. And they got accused a lot of using pre-recorded lead vocals because mm. dude couldn't hang. Like his voice was just, it couldn't handle the touring schedule. Yeah. Um, and he ends up having to leave because he has a chronic throat infection. That sucks. So, sad day. See you, not Steve Perry. Bye, Steve Algieri. So, Neil, Sean, and Jonathan Cain won't let this band die. They're the only they two... They won't put the stake in the vampire. They're the only two that are still around. So in 2007, they want to they wanna tour with Def Leppard some more. They had been touring with Def Leppard for whatever reason. Um, they're still touring with Def Leppard, fun fact. Hmm. So in 2007, they're like, hey, we want to go do this again with them. But we can't find a lead singer. So Jonathan Cain and Neil Sean do what anyone does in 2007. They turn to YouTube. And on YouTube, they find some, some U.S.-based tribute bands. They audition them. No one really stands out to them. But then they find this dude. And if there's a documentary about this, too. Neil Sean literally was watching, in 2007, was watching like 10 hours of YouTube at a, t- at a day trying to find the perfect singer. Like, hmm. he was going down rabbit holes. Hmm. And he finds this guy. His name is Arnel Pineda. He's in the Philippines. He's in a cover band called The Zoo, and he sounds just like Steve Perry. Oh. It's creepy. When? He he literally emails the dude. Uh, Arnell is, doesn't even run his own YouTube channel. His, like, friend who has a computer. Because in the Philippines in 2007, so, like, not everyone has a computer. Yeah. His friend uploads videos of the zoo concerts. And he emails this dude, and he's like, hey, you're really good. Do you want to be in our band? And, like, the whole village loses their mind they're like yes you have to go do this um and interesting enough when he joins the band there's a lot of racist backlash against the band for hiring him what which makes no sense because randy jackson and randy jackson has already been a part of the band at least once before it's not like the first time there was a non a non-white dude in the band so they come out and they're like hey you guys you fans need to calm down uh, yeah. Jonathan Cain says, we are now a world band. We're international. We're not about one color. Good response. So they have been touring with him ever since. I, he's the singer that I saw when I saw them last August. Uh, wrapping up their history, they really haven't done much other than tour. They've had, I think, one or two albums with Arnell being lead vocals. In 2017, they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the internet was super pissed that Steve Perry did not perform at their induction. He, he's, he's, he had his time. He, he had his moment. But I think, this is my theory. There's no, nothing to back this up. So in 2017, everyone gets mad he doesn't sing there. In 2018, he releases his first solo album in a long time called Traces. So I think maybe that inspired him to come back to music. And in this, just in April of this year, he released his first music video in 25 years. Did he really? I watched it. It's, it's worth a wrap. Let's talk about their musical style, because it's interesting. Uh, yeah, they, they've gone through a lot. They, they transitioned a lot. Once they got Jonathan Cain and his synthesizers, they kind of settled on a, uh, on a sound there. Mm-hmm. But I was like, what would you classify Journey as? I'm doing the search. And it comes up as corporate rock, because their sound, along with Styx, Foreigner, Boston, and REO Speedwagon, was specifically designed to sell records. That was the end goal. Uh, it was also, it was designed to sell records and to reach the cheap seats in the back with these big, just emotional, 
sweeping songs. Like, so the goal was whether you had a front row seat or you had a, a $3 seat in the back, you would still feel leaving like these bands spoke to you. Hmm. It was a genius. It was a marketing ploy. But for those who lived through that, obviously not us, uh, but those who lived through the 70s and 80s with Zeppelin and, and all of those artists, they hated Journey. They thought that Journey was the epitome of sellout rock and roll. Yeah. Um, they didn't think that they were musically talented. Like, they did I, not like I them. mean, to be fair, they have a really good point by calling them sellouts because it's corporate rock. It's corporate rock. It's literally designed to sell. Yes. Uh, so to claim that, I mean, they're, they're, they're spot, they're spot on. Yes. It's very hard to refute that. I just thought it was, it was an interesting note. Um, their stage presence. I watched some of their live footage. I've seen them live, not with Steve, but with Arnell. Uh, they tout that there are no bad seats. Like I said, interesting that they're in this era because they do the exact opposite of what big bands in this era do. They don't have costumes. They don't have stage like personas. They literally get up there in jeans and tank tops and they just do the music and then they leave. That's kind of big for corporate. I know. They are talented musicians, I will say that. But they're the first band to use a video screen on stage. Interesting. And they were they were such a pioneer of that technique mm-hmm. that our good friend Herbie started a business to sell these screens to other bands. There you go, Herb. I'm telling you, dude is loaded now. Uh, he's he's fine. He's got a video game made up about him. He's got a business on the side. He's fine. Her- Herbie's in a pool right now just swimming. He probably is. In his mansion. Probably. Um, so the reason that I chose, chose Journey for this topic is because of their pop culture impact. Before I talk about Don't Stop Believing, we're going to sidebar to Faithfully for a second. Faithfully, if you haven't heard it, just go listen to it. It's a sweeping you know, love song about... Jonathan Cain wrote it while he was on the road for his wife because he missed her and he he was being lulled to sleep with the the sound of the tour bus tires type thing. Oh, that's so he writes so the song and he releases it and like I don't know, 15, 20 years later, Journey's broke they're not broken up. They're on, they're doing their own thing. He gets a call from Prince's manager and is like, Hey, Prince wants to meet with you. And he's like, Okay, but why? And they're like, don't ask questions. Just come meet with Prince. Yeah, you don't ask questions. When Prince calls upon you, you go. You just go. So he meets with Prince. And Prince just plays him his new song that he's written called Purple Rain. And he Mm. says, hey, I really don't want to step on your toes, but I think that the closing of this song sounds a lot like Faithfully. I just want your stamp of approval before I release it. And Jonathan Cain is like, I can't even believe that you, like, asked me, like. That's Good on Prince. Yeah, so Jonathan King gave him his stamp of approval, and oh, we all know how Purple Rain... I hope you guys know how Purple Rain Yeah, you, you better know. If you don't know... It's, not, it's okay if you don't know. We will that's tell why you. That's why we're here. But now... But isn't... Yeah. Go see it. Go, I mean, go... Well, you can go see we'll it. Make you, we'll make you a playlist, go guys. Stay tuned. Yeah. So their number one song that everyone knows them for, if you've ever been in a bar at 2 a.m. when this comes on, is Don't Stop Believing. And it's always at 2. It's it not is. at 12. It's not at 3. There, there was an article that I read that said there was a time in history where every karaoke bar couldn't go an hour without someone singing the song. Oh, gosh. Um, and I, I was kind of like, so what is it about this song that has stuck with people? And this dude who's a music teacher wrote an article about why this song persists. 
And he says it's because it builds like a musical. Yeah. You can, it, it kind of, it starts soft and it just builds some fun facts about the song. The name of the song doesn't make an appearance for the first minute and 30 seconds, which is super unusual Yeah, for the chorus not to appear earlier. And there is no South Detroit. There is East and West Detroit, but there is no South Detroit. That's South just, Detroit is simply referred to as downtown Detroit. I don't know how I feel. Like, part of me is like, I understand from a music stand, like a lyric standpoint, because it just works. That's why, that's why Steve wrote it that way. But now it's like, man, it's not quite accurate. It's fine. It's fine. You can it. thank the genius little bubbles that pop up on Spotify for that nugget of information. So this song, it was, it was popular in its day, then it kind of died out, and then show started using it as kind of a, a way to set like a period. They would just set it back in the 80s. So it was most notably first used. I, I mean, I'm sure it was used before this, but these are the, these are the big instances I'm going to list for you. In the final episode of The Sopranos. Wait, oh yeah, it was because in that episode, I've never watched The Sopranos. I just know how it ends. Like yeah. they're at the they're at diner. A, yeah, and, and it starts then, playing in the background. The way that our generation knows it is from a little show called Glee, mm-hmm. in which it was covered four times. Was it covered four? It was covered four times. I stopped watching after season two. I watched through season three, I think. Glee was, side note, Glee was my jam. Oh, in high when school. you were in high school? Yeah. And you, theater in high, high school, school theater kids. When that came out, it was like. It was the end all be all. Yeah. It, yeah. So yeah, in in the show's history, they covered this song four times, which is honestly one of the reasons it got revived is because of Glee. Hmm. They even dedicated a whole episode to Journey. It was oh. called Journey to Regionals. So then my personal favorite on this list is Sesame Street. Sesame Street has this song, but it's not just Don't Stop Believing. Sesame Street did a Glee parody. And in this Glee parody, what? I'm gonna, I'm, I'll find some way to share this video with everybody because it's the best thing I've ever seen. So you, it's like they're reenacting Glee, but you have the the choir nerds who all insist that the G sound is a guh sound, and then the Jirios, who are your cheerleaders, come in and insist that the G makes a J sound. So then they have to battle oh. it out. And they somehow sing it. They do it to the tune of Don't Stop Believin'. Huh. It's amazing. Huh. Sesame Street writers, you guys are doing it right. Uh, it makes an appearance in the Rock of Ages movie. We won't talk about how horribly cheesy we'll that on. movie is. We'll move on. We'll move uh, on from it. But another reason people our age may know it. Uh, the other great, great one is when the Chicago White Sox won their championship game in 2005, Steve Perry who I guess was living in Chicago at the time, joined the, the big celebration in the center of the, of, the, of the town and just starts singing Don't Stop Believing" into the mic. <laughs> Acapella. I'll, I'll, I'll show him. There's a, there's a great clip of it on YouTube. And it was featured in season eight of American Idol, which I, I just love that Randy Jackson had to watch this now that I know about this. Oh, yeah, that's that's, that's It is not a great performance. Don't watch it. But... Uh, it is where one of the first songs, it was the, the top nine of season eight, and it's one of the first songs in that season where Adam Lambert stood out to the judges and to America. I like that. Because he was one of the only ones who could actually hit those notes. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, bringing this full circle, 
It is also used in a famous Family Guy scene in which the whole town joins in to sing, Don't Stop Believin'. And that, my friends, is Journey. Wow, what a journey this has been. I was waiting for that. Hey, you know it's coming. <laughs> you don't work in marketing and not, no. not think those all the time. And that comes with the territory. So yeah, thanks for listening. If you what wanna... was your uh, beverage of choice today? Oh yeah, my beverage of choice is a Krabby's Spiced Orange Alcoholic Ginger Beer, which sounds weird, but is delicious. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page for photography for our cover art. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. And you can also follow us at Bethann Tarpley. That's B E T H A N N E T A R P L E Y. And Leah at Leah. Elizabeth, and that's Leah as in L-E-A-H, Elizabeth dot J. Thanks for joining us. Bye.